Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Celtic Soul Podcast with me, Andrew Millen. You're all very welcome to episode 13. My guest on the show today will be Matt McGlone editor of the Alternative View fanzine and also the founder of the Cells for Change movement, which oisted the old board and gave way to Fergus McCann and the new regime at Celtic Park. This episode has been kindly sponsored by Humes, the oldest pub in Portleash. Thanks to Staple for the continued support. Celtic are well into the pre-season training now and preparing for a number of pre-season friendlies when they will finally get to wear the much-talked-about Adidas strip, which by the time a ball is kicked, it will be selling like hotcakes and many a jersey will be in many a wardrobe. I have to say I do like a bit of Adidas gear, especially the old retro trainers. Under normal circumstances, pre-season fixtures are viewed with a mixed reaction. There's that will-I-won't-I attitude sometimes. Under these circumstances, with the COVID-19, you would travel from anywhere to see Celtic play and you would travel to see them playing anyone. Even just to get out of the house or to get out of your town, to have a few beers with your mates and experience that match day. So close your eyes and join me. A couple of points in Glasgow, maybe in McCool's, the Pogues are playing in the background, then stroll up to Gallagher, another point, more familiar faces. Maybe a fish supper for soaking up the points. I can smell the vinegar already. I walk up, I'm getting faster as kick-off approaches, and then I see it. Paradise, Celtic Park, through the turnstiles, out of the tunnel, just as you'll never walk alone is sung. The hair is standing on the back of my head. I have a chill down my spine. I'm home. I'm in a home with me mates. It's green and white. The referee blows the whistle. For 90 minutes, I live every emotion. Has it been this long? The ref blows the final whistle. We've won. We're happy. And then I'm on a supporters bus. I'm on my way to the Goblins. I'm in the brazen head. Gary Ogers on stage, belting out redemption song. Gian Farioli. He's smiling behind the bar. He's another full house. The young ones are on the venom. I just can't get enough. Open your eyes. We will be back. 
Funny how some fans often turned their nose up at a friendly at Celtic Park, but just can't miss a bus trip to Sunderland or a flight to a European city. Away days, they seem so far away. I suppose when you're so far away from Glasgow, every game is an away game. France or Spain, it's all the same. We'll go anywhere. When we do get back to Celtic Park, it will be emotional. Depending on how many beers are consumed, there could be tears. But can you imagine the excitement of Dundee away or a trip to Aberdeen on a packed bus waiting for the police to stop the bus and confiscate your cargo of Buckfast, Mad Dog and cans of lager you can't even pronounce. But they've missed out on your bottle of vodka because you've been clever enough to pour it in a 7-up bottle. It's a result and the ball hasn't even been kicked. And it will be almost erotic when we finally get to a European away game for a couple of days. Pubs packed, crack 90. Some fans on the hunt for tickets, others just happy to be in a new city. How long ago was Rome? How long ago was Copenhagen? How long ago was Transylvania? Too long. I really enjoyed chatting to Matt today. Here's how we got on when we spoke earlier on. Matt McGlone has a long history in Celtic fanzines, from once a Tim to the alternative view, which he still edits and produces. He is also the founder of the Cells for Change movement, which he founded back in 1993. The group would go on to ice the old board, see them exit the Celtic Park building, and see the new reign of Fergus McCann. Hi, Matt. You're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. Firstly, how have you been in lockdown and how is your health? Hi, Andrew. Uh, nice to see you. Nice to speak to you again. And uh, hello to all your listeners. The lockdown's been a bit strange um, when it kicked off. We're all sort of wondering what happens next. Then as the weeks went on, we're getting three weekly bulletins of what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, it's been a bit of a learning curve um, just to see how we got on with life without doing all the normal things we'd normally do, socialising, seeing our families, getting to work, getting access to places, moving around. You know, I, I found bits of it tricky. And I, I found other bits of it just, well, I'll, I just said to myself, everybody's in the same position here. So we just knuckled down, got on with it. And that's that's uh, what I did. Health-wise, uh, I'm getting there. Um, I just have to live my life a bit more carefully now. And I've got a new regime and uh, I've got an ongoing situation here that I have to deal with. So it's up to me to deal with it. And again, just got on with it and uh, do it as best I can. Just for the listeners, Matt, you did suffer a heart attack. Yeah, on January 11th. Never forget that day, obviously. So I got a real sort of a jolt there. It was, it wasn't like, well, obviously you suffered a heart attack. It's not a great experience. But I remember when I was down at the, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is the Southern General in Glasgow, get renamed there. And uh, I did ask the question to the consultant that was treating me. I said, how bad is this? You know, because I was finding it difficult to breathe and I was in quite a lot of uh, discomfort, pain, shooting pains up the arm and very tight chest. And it turns out I actually knew the consultant. I hadn't seen her for a long time, but I actually knew her. And I said, uh, you know, how bad is this? And she said, um, you'll be fine as long as I'm on shift. And I said, <laughs> and I remember saying to her, well, if you need any overtime, I'll pay it. <laughs> So, um, but but they were great down there, but they don't do heart stuff. So they stabilised me. Within 15 minutes, I was in an ambulance over to the uh, Golden Jubilee Hospital in Clydebank, which is a heart specialist hospital. And I was uh, straight off the, the back of the um, the ambulance, straight into the theatre. 90 minutes later, after I was operated on, I was I was up in the room and I was I felt quite stable. And I got the chat the next day from the heart specialist. And he basically told me, you know, that uh, 
film today, your life changes and you have to live your life differently. And uh, I took that on board. So I differently exercise what they do. I went to cardiac rehab. It got interrupted. It was meant to be three uh, months cardiac rehab down at the hospital twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday. But that got interrupted around about the eighth or ninth week with the, the COVID. So th- I felt that was quite a... I, I felt... Uh, I, I quite missed that, actually, because I didn't actually realise that when you have a heart attack, it's it's more of a mental and emotional recovery. As much as it is a physical recovery, I thought it would be merely physical, but it's uh, mental and emotional as well. As MD, it's, it's had this, this illness will tell you. About a week after it, you know, I, I, I couldn't walk 50 yards and I, you know, I, I really, you know, I was really quite concerned. Um, puffed out, couldn't breathe. And I thought, is this going to be me the rest of my life? But, you know, I buckled down and I did what they told me to do. And as they say, this part of the world, and I'm sure you're part of the world as well, keep taking the tablets which I do, um, I'm just saying to myself, well, I've got on with it. You're here, you're still here. It was a close call. And uh, I, I live every day as if it's a bonus. That's, that's the way I look at things. Brilliant, Matt. And I was, I was in contact with you briefly after it. And uh, I think about out walking the day, I was in contact with you. So yeah, obviously... Well, yes, you were, Andrew. And I have to say, you know, you were one of the people who did keep in touch with me quite a lot. And you were always asking. And uh, I remember things like that. And that means quite a lot to me and uh, people who take an interest in your health. And uh, you were one of the people who was in contact with me quite a lot. So I do really appreciate that. I was only recommending bananas and pears and no more fried food down in government. Well, fries are more or less out for me now. <laughs> I just don't do fries, don't do processed foods. Because I don't smoke, um, the doctor said I can still enjoy a Guinness now and again. No major sort of uh, barriers there. Eat a lot more salads, eat a lot more home-cooked food. I just try and do everything they say because when you get a yellow card and you have a second chance then yeah, a real mug if you don't take it that's a great way of putting it a yellow card a one great stuff can you also take the listeners back a little give them a little introduction to yourself growing up in Glasgow and how you got involved in fanzines and then how you got involved then in, in your, playing your part and getting rid of the old board yeah well I mean Craig I was just thinking this afternoon you know people to remember that would have to be in their sort of early to mid 40s because that was coming up for 27 years ago now so if you were 16 then when you might be taking an interest you'd be 43 now so uh, my own part in it being a Celts fan I drank in a pub called Heritage and Pollockshaw's Road which was, wasn't a Celtic pub but it was a you know, mostly Celtic fans that drank in there and huge group of people etc uh, not the View fanzine came out the mid 80s and I thought wow that is absolutely wonderful here is a, a fan's voice uh, in print and paper remember there's no internet anywhere near that time so here is a thing where you're actually reading something that the fans put together the letters the articles the input the cartoons and it was a great read and um, I always thought you know I would love to be involved in something like that so around about 1990 I had a bit of time in my hands and I was changing career and I felt I'd have a go at writing. And I started a magazine called Once a Tim, Always a Tim. Tim, obviously, as you know, being a street name for a Celtic fan. Um, so Once a Celtic fan, Always a Celtic fan. That was the whole idea about it. So that was a pretty basic effort, you know, done in the kitchen table, you know, cutting pasted, people doing things in typewriters and sticking it all together. And uh, it got that going. And... Um, Doing that, um, I became aware around about two years later, about 92, 93, that the Celtic board were in a bit of trouble financially. 
and uh, I was getting some decent stuff fed to me and I was reproducing it in the fanzine. And I, I had a sort of conscience, you know, I thought about this over a period of time. I had a, a conscience moment that if you're going to be writing a fanzine and, and putting it out there and, you know, cutting and pasting the whole thing and very basically just getting the word out there, then maybe that's a prompt to get involved, a prompt to maybe do something. What I did was, um, it was right about September 1993, uh, I took out an advert in the Sunday Mail, um, and it co- I remember it cost me £90, and it was no bigger than sort of two small postage stamps put together. And it basically said, if you care about your club, turn up at the City Halls tomorrow night. And that next night was the was the Monday, obviously. And uh, I turned up there and um, a couple of pals came along with me. I was really, really nervous. I was really nervous. I'd never really done any public speaking at all. And uh, even standing up, you know, being at a wedding or a best man situation, you, you know, you were racked with nerves. But anyway, I went along and about 35 people turned up and uh, got a fair bit of abuse initially. People saying, oh, you're a hun, what are you talking against Celtic for? Who are you? What are you all about? And uh, at the end of that meeting, it was a small hall, a room for about 50 people, 30 to 35 turned up. And uh, a guy came up to me at the end of the meeting who was there, Brendan Sweeney, who has become a, a great friend and comrade throughout the years. And Brendan said, uh, Matt, I think that's a great idea. You know, I'll help you. Uh, I'll get involved. And uh, I, I was a bit shell-shocked, to be honest with you, because when you're standing there, on your Todd, on your own, and other Celtic fans are, you know, not being nice to you and calling you a Rangers fan because simply you must be a Rangers fan if you're saying things against the Celtic board. You know, here they are trying to get a message over. So I, I must, I went home and I felt a bit dispirited, and I thought I'm never going to do that again. But um, Brendan and I spoke on the phone and we arranged another meeting. Word had got around, no internet, but you know, word got around and they put posters out and leaflets and things and leafleted fans at the games and said, again, if you care about your club, turn up, you know, tomorrow night. We, we didn't actually have a name for the group at the time. Uh, I, I had initially said Green Action, and uh, <laughs> some other people thought, no, <laughs> maybe not a good idea that one, but well, why not? Why not? But, um, Brendan got hold of a guy that he went to school with and uh, and then we picked uh, one another guy came out the crowd who was at the meetings and the thing got going. So the second meeting, uh, apart from a car up at the candle rigs, had paid, I think it was I think it was I think it was £45 to rent the hall. So I paid my £45 again. So at this point I'd paid £45 to rent the hall, £90 for the advert trying to get this message over. So rolled up, had booked the same hall, £45 again. There's all these Celtic fans standing outside candle rigs where Gracie's Bar is at the minute, and or just round the corner from there. And uh, that was the City Halls. And I thought, oh no, I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd double booked tonight. I thought it was a Celtic rally on. So I walked up to the front of the queue and all these fans were standing there with their scarfs on their Tammy's, etc. It was getting cold late, late September. And I said to the guy at the door, what's this? And he said, uh, just get in the back of the queue, mate. And I said, uh, I said, well, I've actually booked a hall in here. I didn't know at the time, Andrew, that there was four or five halls in the city halls. You know, one would be a 50-seater or 50-capacity hall. 
one would be 150, one would be 350, right up to two and a half thousand. And they said, this is a Celtics for change thing, mate. And I said, well, it's myself, it's organised that, that. I have to tell you, I actually lost my breath. I turned around and I looked and I saw the crowd and uh, I actually lost my breath thinking, my God, there must be over 300 people here. So I got inside and I spoke to the, the janitor guy, the Johnny, the concierge, and I says, listen, there's too many people here. He said, we've got other halls here. So... Um, we got everybody into another hall. It was about three hundred and fifty seater, and uh, that time there was myself, uh, Brendan Sweeney, uh, Brendan met a guy called David Cunningham from school. You'd got him along, and there's a couple other people who weren't actually in the final five, but who were interested. And we had a table with a banner, and the banner says "Back the team, sack the board." Because when I was getting called all sorts of names from Celtic fans at the very first meeting. I think we had to have a message which told the fans, you know, we're Celtic fans. And when I when we got the, the, the banner back, the team sacked the board, they got the message. We weren't against the club. We're trying to save the club. We're trying to make fans alert to what the problems were at Celtic. But we were backing the team. They're not going to turn up and boo the team. We were trying to back the team at every single game. Um, prior to the boycott, which didn't come to several months later, we were working up to that. No point in asking people to boycott before they knew what your aims were and who you were. So we had to get the confidence of the fans. And I felt the banner back the team, sacked the board. So I did that in quite a lot of ways. So, so from that meeting, uh, the whole thing took off. And, uh, it, you know, we went to bigger halls and uh, there was lots going on in between. We did meet, we did Celts for Change meetings out at uh, every Town Hall big places there, Govan Town Hall and uh, we're over in Ireland and the, there was there was a great meeting over in Dundalk, at the Imperial Hotel in Dundalk, absolutely fantastic meeting because we didn't get the backing here of the Celtic Supporters Association and we didn't get the backing of the affiliation of Celtic Supporters Clubs you know, they didn't like us and uh, you know they said we were sort of renegades and I remember when we, our paths crossed, one of the guys that ran them, involved in them, said to me, you don't even have a constitution. And I said, a constitution? I said, why the fuck would we have a constitution when we're a rebel movement? You know, this is soldiers. <laughs> this is feet on the ground. This is people who care, who want are wanting to bring change. We're not going to sit and drop constitutions. We're going to appeal to the people in the street. This was raw. It was raw and hardcore. And you know, sometimes trying to control the crowds when they got big outside the ground. It was, you know, we didn't want any animosity. We didn't want any fans turning up, shouting at other fans. We wanted fans to believe in what we were doing, to understand what the problem was. And that was very difficult, really, really difficult. But I think we got there eventually. Anyway, we got an invite over to Ireland to the Imperial Hotel in Dundalk and it was an absolutely fantastic meeting. I think from memory, there were well over 200 people there, maybe 250. But I think from memory, there was 52 Celtic supporters clubs in all of Ireland at the time. And uh, there was 51 delegates there. One represented each club. Obviously, lots of other people, but there was at least one from each club. And they had a vote. They had a really passionate sort of speech to the fans, telling them what was going on. And I can understand why people would maybe be against us. I get that. I do get that because I think, who are these guys? Who are they? What's their background? You know, they they trying to mess up Celtic. They, they trying to cause division. 
Because before that, the only people that spoke out against Celtic were non-Celtic fans. It was Rangers fans principally. So people were maybe a bit suspicious of you. But we kept at it. We stuck to the plan. We took the good with the bad. And uh, at that meeting, 51 out of 52 Irish Celtic sports clubs gave us their backing. And I have to say, that was a game changer. That was in January, maybe January, maybe February 94. And that was a game changer. Uh, and the reason we didn't get the 52 out of 52, because one of the guys, the other delegate out of the 52, had to go back to his club to tell him what had happened. And he had to explain to them what they were actually backing. And could he give the backing? And we got that backing. The next day, uh, that other club in Ireland gave us the backing. We get 52 out of 52. We weren't getting the backing here from the Celtic Sports Association. We weren't getting backing from the um, the affiliation of Celtic Sports Clubs here. But here we had 52 Celtic Sports Clubs from Ireland totally backing us. I have to say, that was an absolute game changer. I mean, there was a lot of times, you know, there was a lot of times the heads were down. Because we're just guys. <laughs> we had families, jobs to go to. You know, we're doing meetings on a Sunday and travelling all over the place. And, um, you know, these halls had to be paid for. So to make sure everything was above board, we got um, pass keepers out of uh, Catholic churches to go around with buckets. Because when we got into, when we progressed into the main hall at the City Halls in Glasgow, that was about £450 to hire that. <laughs> we're working class guys, <laughs> kids, jobs, hire purchase on cars. Mortgages, <laughs> you name it. You know, I mean, who's who's going to pay for this? So we appealed. And had the fans not chipped into the buckets, you know, we, we couldn't have carried the movement on. It would have been impossible. You know, imagine the grief you'd get if you went home to your partner or your wife and you said, by the way, I need 100 quid and so did the other four or five guys, you know, to pay for this haul. <laughs> you'd have to get chased. <laughs> well, Matt, I knew the Irish clubs would back it because we love, we love Rebels. Well, you know, I mean, there's pivotal points in your life, Andrew, that you remember things. And there's many things during the whole campaign that will stick with me. But that was major. That was an entire country full of Celtic fans saying, we're into you, we believe in you. There was no politics from supporters associations or clubs. It was just, yeah, we believe you, we trust you, we're going to back you. And of course, the more backing you got, the more publicity you got. There's a guy in ITN, I think he's maybe in BBC now, Hugh Pym. I think he's the political correspondent for the BBC, Hugh Pym. Anyway, he worked for ITN at the time. He was up here cutting his teeth. And of course, you know, when we're doing rallies and demonstrations, we were getting a fair bit of publicity. I remember Hugh came up to me one time, probably seen him on TV, Hugh Pym. He came up to me one time and he said, I have to say, Matt, the London chat's probably not a very good London accent. He said, but I have to say, Matt, he said... Your campaign is having an amazing effect. He said, you're getting great publicity here. He says, uh, what, what uh, PR company do you use? <laughs> <laughs> I like to read the rest of the guys. <laughs> we did <do> it myself. <laughs> Some crack if you had to send a book around looking for collections for a PR company. Well, you know, we, I said, you know, we, uh, we, we do it ourselves. But... Um, no, there was so much went on in those days. I mean, I could be I could be here all day telling you stories about things, but basically, you know, the fans uh, eventually believed in us, and uh, that's how we ran the campaign. That's basically how it worked. Now, Matt, I want to fast forward. We will dip back into those times. I want to fast forward now to today. The fixes are out. 
season books are renewed. The players are back in pre-season. There's a number of friendlies lined up in France. But yet we're in strange times, as you said earlier on, with the COVID-19. We've no idea when we'll get back into the stadiums. We've no idea how many will be allowed back in. We now have a virtual season ticket, which we're paying full price for, which maybe could have been handled a little bit better. How do you, how do you see things playing out and how do you think the club has handled it up to this? I think the club have been really clumsy and awkward about the whole thing. I mean, if you look at the Kano Foundation, you know, they, they basically buy tickets so that kids can be educated to go and see Celtic. Kids that maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go and see Celtic. And as far as I know, what I've been reading recently, they've been asked to pay the full whack for tickets, for a, a login code, you know, for a, an online device. It's not even the television. Of course, a lot of these games that we're paying full whack for are going to be covered by our Sky subscriptions as well. You know, you could say, in my, in my family, there's four season tickets, you know, myself, two of my sons and my daughter. And, uh, you know, we could just be sitting watching the same way I'm speaking to you just now on a telephone or an iPad or, or a computer. I understand the difficulties the club's got there. I, I do get it. But what irks me here is they're treating us just like a number, as if we're a number on a balance sheet, not thinking about us as people who love the club, love what Celtic are about, love the entire ethos, morality of how Celtic players play and how the Celtic fans uh, are into the whole thing, from the whole way back to Brother Walford. That's what makes us a wee bit different. In fact, it's not a wee bit different. It makes us completely different from any other group of fans. And yet here we are being treated as if we're numbers on a balance sheet without any care. A lot of people you'll know, as I will know, are furloughed. A lot of people have lost their jobs. I was talking to a pal this morning, one of the boys that writes in the magazine. He was furloughed and he was getting by on the furlough. He's a season ticket holder. He's now lost his job because he got laid off. You know, this is not isolated. So can the club maybe not look a wee bit at our circumstance? Yes, we want to keep the money in the club. Yes, we want to back the club totally. But can you maybe give it two or three minutes to think about how our circumstances are? I mean, had they said £15, let's take the average season ticket price, say £30 for a game. What if they said £15 until the games come back? You know, I think every every fan would have went, yeah, fantastic. Get a login, watch the games, even though we might be paying double because we have Sky or whatever, or Premier Sports for, for cup games, BT perhaps for European games. All these other costs are there. Could the club maybe not have suggested £15 to keep your seat and get a login until the games are back on. I think that would have been a fairer way to do it. And I think great organisations like the Kano Foundation and there's other people who take kids to games from backgrounds where they've maybe not got the opportunity. And they're having to buy this login thing as well. You know, the Brother Walford culture and ethos of Celtic and the whole reason they founded it wasn't to be treated like this. It was the exact opposite. I'm disappointed the way the club's handled it. But it's a case of, you know, they see us, nobody's going to give up their season ticket unless they really have to financially, which would be a terrible shame. But they know this is 10. And, uh, you know, prior to Brendan Rodgers coming in and Neil taking over and things being on up again, there was huge empty areas in some of the stands. Um, so I just think we should be treated properly and treated the same way and not really with a sort of gun held to our head. But that's the way it is. 
Yeah, Celtic and the people that run it, they run a good business. No one can question that. But they do pull on our emotional strings because they know we love the club and they know we all want to be part of this season. You wrote a book entitled Emotionally Celtic, which I have to be honest, Matt, I only read last summer on holidays and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did a few beers on a Spanish beach and it was a small enough book. It fitted into my combat pocket so I didn't have to carry <laughs> anything around. And I have to say, I read it fairly quick. It was, it was a really good... And it was a read, I suppose, that some reads about the club are quite heavy. This was quite, you know, it was a fan story. It was, it was a good story. And there was a lot of stuff in it that I, I didn't know about. And a few funny stories as well about your time in Russia. And that. When did you write that book? Let's see. I wrote the book around about the tail end of 94 into 95. First of all, I didn't think I could write a book. I didn't think I had the ability to write a book. And uh, I remember standing in the Heritage pub one day and there was, a, there was a Glasgow writer. He worked for the Herald. He was a, a freelance guy. His name was Jack McLean. A lot of people in Glasgow would know him. And he had a, a nickname called the Urban Voltaire. And we're yapping away about Celtic. And he said to me, you keep talking about all these stories. Why don't you write it down? And I said, Jack, I, I couldn't write a book. I says, write a book? I says, you couldn't. I can't even type. I don't even have a word processor. And, you know, that, that was the rage at the time. The book was actually written on a word processor <laughs> with one finger. <laughs> with one finger typist. Um, so he said to me, you should do it. And I thought, should I? I don't know. So I thought about it. And he, he gave me a great bit of advice. I said, I don't, I don't think I could put all that together. How, how do you put all that together? To be honest with you, Andrew, I was still a bit shell-shocked about what had happened at Celtic and the, the emotion that myself and other guys in the group came through. There was a lot of really heavy times, really heavy times, tearful, emotional times. I remember one day, I went up to visit my mother. My mother is, is dead 17 years now. And uh, I went up to visit her. And uh, things were getting tough with me. I was really feeling down. I was really down. And uh, there's a saying in Glasgow, I don't know if you have an island, what's up with your face? Uh, meaning, you know, why are you looking like that? And she says, what's up with your face? And I said, I, I don't know if you can keep up this campaign. I says, there's pressure right, left and centre. There's so much going on. And, you know, if an ordinary guy who, you know, wasn't trained to do any of this campaigning and public speaking and dealing with the press and, working out the next moves and having to deal with people who were for you and against you. I said, I just feel the whole thing is absolutely clouding my head. I don't feel like I can really carry this on much longer. That must have been around about maybe the January of 94. And my mother was never one who would ever sort of been to a football match. Uh, my mother came from Wisher, uh, out near Carfin in Lanarkshire. And... Uh, she grabbed me and said, if you ever come in here again with that negative, defeatist attitude, she says, you'll get a scalp in the face. <laughs> and I thought to myself, here's a woman who doesn't know much about football. She knows what her son's into. I'm the only son. My sister lives in America. So the focus was on me here as being the only son. And um, she's basically saying, you weren't brought up to chuck it. You were brought up to Draining, you know, grit, a bit of grit, get on with things. When life goes against you, just got on with things. Think of the positive all the same. And don't ever come in here again with that face saying that you're going to quit or you're thinking of quitting. I was never going to quit. But, you know, just one of those days, Andrew, you know you get them. Just, the whole world was on my shoulders. 
And I just felt talking to my mother that I could actually have an out and speak to her about it. And I always remember to say, it's never you come in here again, that defeatist attitude. You get out there and carry on the job you're doing. And she didn't know half of the stuff that was going on with Steps for Change. But she just, it was a, it was a message to me. So from that moment, uh, I took on a, a whole different approach. You know, I saw the the love and sort of care that my mother had there um, for me, saying, carry on, get it done, don't give up. You know, you, we didn't bring you up like that in this house. What you made of, stuff like that. She really gave me a good kick. And uh, so that, that was a good boost for me. Um, sorry, back to the book. Um, so what Jack McLean said to me is a good bit of advice. I said, I don't think I could write a book. He said, um, get bits of paper, write down things you remember, jogging points, key points that you remember, write them all down. To be honest with you, Andrew, for about six months after he told me that, I carried scraps of paper about with me, <laughs> wee 50 pence notebooks, writing things down on them, key points, what happened then, what happened then, what happened then. And then I sat down and I took a key point and I said, right, let's talk about that key point. And from all those different key points, I managed to knock out about 17 or 18 chapters. And the important thing about the book for me was, well, how, how, how did you get here? I mean, how did you get to this point, Matt, of this silks for change thing? And so I went back to being brought up um, and going to school and experiences there. So they were quite easy to remember, you know, living in Glasgow. You can imagine what it's like, um, you know, if you're a Celtic fan then, you know, you're a Rangers fan, so you know who your enemy is and who your friends are. So I spoke quite a lot about that and getting brought up, etc. and obviously some personal relationships or things thrown in there and the effect the campaign had on, on your life and stuff like that and coping with it. And So I think that's, I think people could relate to the book. I always say to people, that's you, you're in that book. That You are that person in that book. You're the same as me. I, I'm no different from anybody else. You're the exact same as me. We lived that life. We just maybe took slightly different paths. But growing up a Celtic fan, understanding what Celtic was about, the way we are, the way we hold ourselves, the charitable minds I hope that we do have, I, I just felt that's you. That's you as well. And hopefully that's what people recognised in the book, that they were that person. And I was just the vehicle to carry some of their thoughts. And for the benefit of the listeners, Matt, um... I can see you. They won't be able to. I can. I. They'll be able to hear the emotion in your voice. And what a title for the book, emotionally Celtic, um, because I know you're emotional, especially when you spoke about your, your late mum. So, so thanks for that. Because of all the interviews I've done over the years, I think the most emotional one I've done was with Charlie Gallagher, when he spoke about the call up for Ireland and how proud his family felt. And I remember I done that interview, Matt, in the back of a hall in Ballymena. We were attending a dinner, and we must have been gone for an hour, and it was back. It was pen and paper days. It was no, there was no getting the iPhone out to record it. So that actually brought a lot of memories back for me there when you were speaking. It's funny how the mind goes. Now, Matt, you're of a vintage, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you would remember, <laughs> you would remember the first nine in a row. I did, I, I did. I remember when it finished. Um, I remember it towards the end, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, just just the last season. Before you, before you get any more vintage with me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, vintage, there's vintage and there's retro oh yeah well you're not as old as Charlie Gallagher <laughs> a quick story about Charlie Gallagher funny enough when the whole thing was over uh, Fergus McCann said uh, 
why don't you come up and be a guest of the club? And I said, well, what about the rest of the guys? There's five guys in Celts for change. And he said, yeah, yeah, right, okay then. So the five of us were a guest of the club and we went up. And uh, I remember getting an underground to Argyle uh, uh, Street. And I jumped in a taxi at uh, Seatnock Square in Glasgow. And Charlie Gallagher was the taxi driver and took me up to Celtic Park that day. And I thought, well, take all these stars are aligning here. Hang on a minute. Charlie Gallagher's driving me up to Celtic Park for a day that we can sort of celebrate after Celtic for change. I mean, how does that work? No. And it's funny you should say that um, when I started selling the fanzine outside Celtic Park Force, Charlie used to come up and buy a copy and have a chat. And I was always been introduced to him in the early days with John Fallon. But he'd be telling me he was parking the taxi and, you know, here's this legendary player coming up and stopping to buy a fanzine. And like, you're thinking, he should be in there, you know, and he should be, they should be whining and dining this person. But here he was chatting to me. So, yeah, Charlie's just, Charlie's just mm-hmm. one of the, he's just one of the good guys that sometimes maybe gets forgotten about, you know. You know, I didn't even know he was a taxi driver. I didn't even know. And he said to me, you looked, you know, you're only looking at the guy's eyes in the back of a taxi, a hackney. And he says, you Matt McGlone? And I said, aye. I didn't know who he was because he had his back to me. And then I kind of looked around and went, my God, you're Charlie Gallagher. I, said, <laughs> I remember as a wee boy at Celtic Park, you took the corner against Bodge Vadena when Big Billy headed into the Bodge Vadena goal. We started talking about Celtic stories and all the rest of it. It was magnificent. I mean, it really was. It was a big thrill for me to... It's, it's always been a thrill to meet the Lisbon Lions. I've met them all and... You know, you're talking earlier on about driving taxis. I remember seeing Bertie working in Bert's bar. And I always thought, myself, that guy should be sitting in a huge house, like a castle, with his feet up, Roy's grandwains around him, taking it easy. But the boys never earned very much money. I mean, nowadays they'd be multi-millionaires. But, you know, then, I think Jim Craig told me they get, uh, say, 500 quid bonus, I think, for winning the European Cup. It might have been 1,500. And at that time, they were earning about 65 pounds a week. I mean, for what those boys achieved, for the history they've left fans. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But it just shows it's totally working class. Everybody apart from wee Bobby came for the central Glasgow area. Unbelievable. We really are left with such a, a great legacy from what these boys achieved. Absolutely fantastic. And that's why most interviews you do, they just always come up time and time again. Someone will have a story about the, the Lions. They're just uh, brilliant stories. Like They're not just... You know, they're not just about games or stats. These were the team of the people. Yeah, I mean, people talk about legends. Every one of these boys is a legend. But there's also icons in amongst them as well. Just writing a piece for the, the Alternative View uh, today. And, you know, Billy McNeil, he's an icon. You know, there's, there's legends and there's icons, but Billy, for me, epitomised everything that Celtic are about. Big, strong, Celtic man standing there with the chest out at Hampden Park playing Rangers. He didn't have to say anything. He just stood there with his chest out. And it was just like, wow, he'll do for me. He's powerful. There's a leader. There's a captain. A man who achieved so much with Celtic. Absolutely unbelievable. A quick story about Celtics for change, actually. Billy had a pub in uh, Torresdale Street in Glasgow called McNeil's. Pub's still there. And um, I used to go in and pop in and say hello, etc. And uh, one day, Billy had a column in a, a tabloid here on a Saturday morning. And uh, one day, I opened it up and it said something along the lines of, don't dismiss these Celts for change guys. These guys are the real deal. 
And it was like Billy McNeil giving Celts for change group. He's blessing, he's backing. And I was like, wow, I flew. <laughs> soon, as soon as the game was finished that Saturday, I flew into the pub. And there's Billy working behind the bar. And I said to him, I can't thank you enough, Billy, for you know, what you've said about the group there. I said, this is massive for us. You know, such a, a huge Celtic figure backing us because we're just guys in the street. And, you know, we're actually getting somewhere now. You know, a person with Billy McNeil's stature is in print saying that, you know, we're doing the right thing. So the, that was another sort of thing which I'll never, ever forget. I remember one time, this is really silly, but I've got to tell you a silly story. There was one time we had a lock-in in Billy's pub and uh, he wasn't drinking, but I was. And they were sitting chatting about Celtic, the sat next thing, and I'm sitting nipping myself, pinching myself, saying, I'm not actually dreaming here, am I? I'm actually sitting, shooting the shit with Billy McNeil, talking away as if he's my best mate. And we know each other, and I'm just trying to act dead casual. <laughs> Try that dead casual when you're shaking inside is pretty difficult. <laughs> I remember Billy saying to me, where do you say that? I said to him, I lived in Shawlands at the time. And Billy lived up Newton Burns way. And he was passing where I lived. It's about a mile away. And his pub was at the top of Victoria Road. And he says, well, I'll, get, I'll drop you off now. I'll give you a, a run up the road. And I said, no, no, it's okay, Billy. I said, I'm actually, it's about two o'clock in the morning, nowhere was open. I said, no, I actually fancy getting myself a bag of chips or a or a kebab or something. I says, I don't think you'll get into open this time. I said, no, I said, I'm, 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 I need a bit of air, actually. I've had a couple of beers. We have really enjoyed the chat. It's been a great night. And the reason I didn't want him to run me up the road is daft. It's really daft. I just couldn't have Billy McNeil run me up the road. And I had to walk up the road before I got home and take it all in. And I'd been sitting, chatting away to Billy and talking to him. Like I'd have a pint with you or a pint with my pal in the pub. And that was just another great memory. But <laughs> that's why, I know it sounds really silly, but that's why I couldn't have Billy drop me off. I couldn't have Billy drive me. Wow. And while you're on about Billy, I'm going to ask you now before we move on, what happened that year when he didn't lead us to the 10? Because obviously it wasn't an immortal thing because nine had never been done before. It's different now. Do you remember anything from that season? Or, you know, was there anything that Lennon can learn from that year or even from when, when it was when it was Rangers like, you know? Well, I, I, I can't really remember back then. I mean, I was pretty young. Vintage, you would say. Young, a young vintage. You were running, um, around, you were running around in flowers. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, do you mean how did, why did the 10 stop the first time? Or why did we not get to 10? Yeah, what was was the returning point in the season? Or I, I really can't remember, Andrew. To be honest with you, I mean, went through season by season. Why it went wrong there, I really couldn't remember. I just remember being young, and when it happened, because I was young and we had went nine years, I'm sort of thinking to myself, I'm still a teenager, and we're not winning the league. So I wasn't a teenager when we started this nine row run. So I did automatically think I thought we always won the league. I remember turning to my dad and sort of saying, what's been wrong here? How come we're not winning the league? Because if you're brought up not be a teenager before that, and you're winning the leagues, that's, you get used to that. So you think something dramatically has went wrong, you know, nine years later when you don't actually have the title. It's a strange feeling. I can understand that maybe a lot of kids nowadays are being brought up only seeing Celtic winning and they're shocked when it gets maybe close it's not being close yet because we're on nine. We're certainly heading for ten. But when it gets close to maybe not winning a, a title, people will maybe slightly panic a wee bit. It is a strange feeling. I can understand how the younger guys feel and girls. 
I'm going to dip back into your time just after um, the cells for change and Ferg has taken over. Um, and you can maybe fill me in because there's a few gaps that maybe I, I know or maybe I've got the incorrect information. So the takeover happens. Did you stop the fanzine then and you joined the Celtic View as a columnist? No, not right away. What happened was um, the fanzine came out um, before Celtic for Change. So the fanzine came out in 1990. As I said earlier, I felt the duty was to get involved. If you're going to write a fanzine, and I'm not saying everybody should think this way, I'm certainly not saying that at all, but I just felt a responsibility there to get involved if you're, if you're doing a fanzine. Um, but the fanzine then took on a sort of battle sort of attitudes and the fanzine was then quite a pivotal uh, as was not the view it was quite a pit two magazines there were quite pivotal to pointing things out to the fans about what needs done so I felt it was counterproductive to carry on the fanzine when you just get rid of the old board and um, you know, I was getting quite tired of it as well I'd say because you know you remember you've got a job as well and you're putting this together so the thrust there and the drive that you had initially uh, and the excitement of the whole Celts for Change thing, I, I just felt I didn't carry on. So that was round about, the takeover was March 4th, 94. I think it was another issue after that, maybe April. And round about six months later, Fergus McCann phoned me up. I'd only met Fergus. I remember I interviewed Fergus um, for the once of Tim Olsen, um fanzine when he came over to try and, and uh, take over the club before he did. And uh, I got an interview with him. I was quite nervous in front of him. He's quite a sharp guy. Um, you know, there's no, hi, how are you doing? There's no, what's freezing outside? There's nothing like that. It's straight in, straight in, and business. Are you finished yet? Right, I, I need to go. Bye, see you later. And you're sitting there and he's away. So um, I had an interview with him and I always found him, you know, a guy way out of my league, obviously. He's a money guy and a uh, Celtic fan, but he operates on a different mental level from me, or maybe I do from him, whatever way it is. And uh, so he called me up around about, I think it was September, October, maybe of that year. And he said, hey, fancy writing a column in the Celtic View. And I said to him, uh, I said, well, I've been writing for about six months. I said, but to be honest with you, Fergus, I don't really think that would work. And he said to me, why is that? And I said, well, because you like things done your way and we have met before and I know how you operate. And, uh, you know, I don't think I could really be bothered writing a fan's article in an official club paper, uh, I says, and then getting edited every day of the week. I said, I don't really think I'd been to that. And to be fair to me, he said, listen, I'll give you a two-year contract. Just write an article every week to the Celtic View. You don't even have to come into the building. Do it in your work process at the house and hand, hand your floppy disk in to Andrew Smith, who's the editor at the time, on a Sunday. And he says, I'll guarantee you that nobody will edit any of your stuff as long as you know where the line is and the responsibility. He says, and I think you do know where the responsibility is. So um, that that was how that, that kind of happened. And did you write for the match day programme as well at any stage? Not initially. Not initially. It's only when, uh, uh, that was 94, so Alan McDonald came into the club uh, around about uh, 1999, uh, around about then, and uh, he had said that they, they had done a Celtic, had spent 60-odd thousand pounds doing a, a survey of what Celtic fans wanted uh, I think he said Leicester University. I think it was Leicester University, he said. Uh, so Leicester University, if it was them, it might be connected, it might have been another one. But um, the club had spent about 60 grand finding out what fans wanted. Did they want chips? Did they want pizzas? Did they want something better than a pie? 
what did they read in the Celtic view? Did they read the supporters notes? Did they read the interviews? What was the percentage of people that, you know, liked interviews? This, that, the next thing. And he said to me, he said, your columns are quite hard-hitting, the fans quite like them. Um, he said, your column came up at 78% of what people would read first in the Celtic view. I said, well, that's great. He said, so I want to bring you in and we'll uh, do a couple of other things. So I had to think about that and this would have meant quitting my job and, and doing it full time. And uh, so we'd a chat about it. Um, big big, big McDonald gets fiercely criticised, obviously because of the Barnes disaster and etc. But what, what a harp he had as a Celtic guy. I mean, this guy's enthusiasm for Celtic, you know, it was unbelievable. I remember sometimes he would call you into the office at four o'clock to tell you something. And after you did that a couple of times, you never trapped his door at four o'clock. Could you ever get out to nine o'clock? You know, you've been there for four or five hours. He's enthusiastic about what he's going to do for Celtic. It's that next thing. He's plans here and his plans there. And I found him a really energetic guy and a very likable guy. But of course, in football, we don't get the results and the manager's not the guy. Then, perhaps the manager, chief exec can take, take the hit as well. So, so anyway, I went in and he said, "I want you to do. I want you to expand your uh, your alternative view to two pages. Um, I want you to edit the letters page." And I thought, "Oh dear, here's a problem right away." So I carried on. He says, "I want you to. I want you to invent two other characters. I want you to write in the match day program." I says, "What's the other two characters for?" And he said, "Well, I want, I want you to write um, out with sort of Matt McGlone, out with the club." White's invent two characters. And the two characters that, that were invented were called Nick. One was called Nick McGuinness, as in stealing my pint, Nick McGuinness, right? So another one was called Liam Elaine. And his Liam's second name was Elaine, A-L-A-N-E. So there was Liam Elaine, as in Glasgow parlance, leave him alone. Uh, so Liam Elaine and Nick McGuinness were two um, alter Matt McGlones, if you want. <laughs> and the idea here was I was to write a lot more press bashing, media bashing. So I'd be sent along to the press conferences and I'd take a completely different tact. Um, Celtic would get some rough press. Well, I've always had rough press, but some really crap biased media was going on at the time. And I'd go along and listen to what was said, record what was said when Martin O'Neill was doing his press conference or a player was talking, whatever. And um, I would, we would then read the papers the following days and find out what was said. And of course, I would pick up on everything that wasn't said. I'd pick up on headlines that were never said. I'd pick up uh, some words which were never said in the way. So I was really forensically uh, pinpointing what the media were right, which wasn't quite correct. So I was sort of cleaning it up, as it were, and sort of saying, you know, that wasn't said, this is what's said. So I said to Alan, well, I don't mind doing it as Mark McGlone. I'm not frightened of I said, I don't mind doing it as Mark McGlone. He says, no, he says, just be a legal point of view. He says, well, we'll have you as uh, the two guys you've just come up with, Nick McGuinness and Liam Elaine. So Nick McGuinness and, <laughs> so Nick McGuinness and Liam Elaine, some fun. I tell you, absolute great fun. But it was also an important job as well because, you know, we're actually clarifying how Celtic had been reported. That was the main thing. There was one particular occasion where the fan really just took me over. I always had to remember, hello, I'm a fan, I'm in the building. You know, you, you can't go, you know, just being maverick all the time. You have to be maverick, but at the same time, have common sense about it. It was after the 6-2 game and... Uh, you know, the excitement of the 6-2 game was just 
it's just different class. I always sat in my own seat. The, the club would give you a seat in the stand, but I wanted to sit with my friends. I've got the same seat as I had from 1994 to this day. And uh, so after that, I would go over to the ground. I had an access all areas pass. I'd go over to the ground, go to the press conference, and I could see some of the faces. They were absolutely gutted. Gutted. The press were gutted. And I could look at the faces and say, I know he's not a friendly face. I know he's not a Celtic man. I know he's not a friendly face. So we're waiting for Martin to come in. And my excitement was peak, peak level, 6-2. Humped him 6-2. Absolutely fucking brilliant. So I went into the um, the Celtic uh, restaurant and I said to one of the girls, um, can you give me a loan of a bottle of champagne? And she says, oh, I can sell it. She says, I don't want to drink it. I says, can you just give me a bottle of champagne and I'll bring it back? So then they got a bottle of Moe champagne and I took my place in the press conference. And uh, as Martin O'Neill came in and sat down, I jumped up just before the first question was put. I slapped the champagne on the desk right in front of me. I says, well done, Martin. This is for you. <laughs> and he's... I could hear the murmurings in the back. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Who's this guy? Let's get on here. Let's see what you get him, Bob. No, you should be acting like that. And I just thought, I don't care what you think. This is my moment. <laughs> and Martin just chuckled and laughed away. So you were a full-time employee at the club? Yeah, I was contracted. I didn't want to be clocking in like everybody else. Um, I, wanted to, I, I wanted the... Um, the freedom to work from the house, uh, to work from the home. That's quite a heavy workload. Editing letters page, um, my own column, Matt, um, uh, Liam Lane, Nick McGuinness. Um, I also had a radio show with Andy Walker before Celtic TV came out. It was, I uh, can't remember what it's called. It may be called Celtic TV, but it wasn't actually on TV. And Andy and I used to do a show on a Wednesday. Uh, this is the internet, which is coming out at this time, 2000, you know. So... Andy would be talking away and I'd be talking away. And it was the kind of thing where I suppose you could think, well, a guy in a beach in California can sit and listen to us. That was the sort of start of Celtic really getting the, the media thing going. So that was one of the other jobs I had. Plus, there's lots of research to doing various different things. So it was media you had a role like John Paul Taylor has now. Was there a liaison officer's role there as well? I, I initially did. Uh, I found a business card the other day there. And it says, it didn't say fans losing us, it's something advisor. Initially it did bear it for a very short spell because that role hadn't been invented, it hadn't been created at the time. But it did deal with uh, supporters' complaints, which didn't really amount to a great deal as far as the workload that John Paul's got at the minute. He's got a specific job, that that's, that role's been created for him. But I was the sort of go-to guy in the building if somebody had a problem. But obviously, you know, the club's much bigger now. There's a lot more going on. And it's a full-time role for JP. In fact, I think JP probably needs a hand. He's a great guy. He does a sterling job there. You know, my position was that uh, I always felt working in the media room was it was an oil and water situation. Um, certain people in there didn't like me because I had the freedom to do everything I was doing. Um, they were writing from a very sort of PLC point of view, club magazine, and I was writing the sort of Maverick stuff that the fans liked, etc. So there was an oil and water situation in that uh, building with me, and that, that was the reason that I eventually left. I had a three-year contract, and I left after two years. I, 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 couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't take the, uh, the backstabbing, the, the pressure, the two-facedness, 
the deceit. Um, I, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I remember speaking to Jim Craig. Jim Craig and I shared the desk. I remember speaking to Big Jim, and he's saying, "Think about it." You know, he says you know, you've got a new child. My son Corey's nineteen now. He was only one, and uh, to get me Corey's only. You know, going to have a job, and it's quite an agonising decision. Um, but there's certain people who are still there that I, I just couldn't work with, and uh, you know, they in effect sort of got into my head a wee bit, I think. And, uh, and I, th- I think back in it now, maybe I shouldn't have allowed it, but hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Yeah, I just, I wasn't sure, Matt, um, I wasn't sure what your role was for start, and I'm glad I got that, because I knew there was bits and, I knew there was bits and pieces, I wasn't sure how, how it played out. Now, obviously you leave Celtic, it must have been a tough decision to leave a club that you've been part of saving, and a club that, you know, means so much to you. Fergus had gone by then, yeah? As you say, he's a different type of person. Do you have any contact with him or have you seen him since? Or? Uh, I hadn't seen Fergus since. Um, he did come back. He came back about seven or eight years ago. When was it he, he put the flag up? I think it was against Dundee United. He uh, came out and put the flag up. It's, it's over four years anyway because they were down yeah. for four years, weren't they? Yeah. And he got in touch with me and he said that uh, he was having a wee dinner at Celtic Park. And he was—he um, wasn't getting into the boardroom. He said he actually hired a room uh, another side of the park, uh, in the behind the North Sand. And uh, myself and a couple of other people were invited to go along. And uh, he just kind of spoke up, you know, and sort of said, "No times passed, and I think we're left with a pretty good club. And how does everybody feel now?" And so on. And you know, I, I saw the man old, getting older, you know, and uh, you know, I get great regard for Fergus. We're never ever in the same wavelength because I was doing such. We were doing the street thing, and he was doing the money thing. Very clever guy, and uh, worked his socks off many many hours over those four and a half years he was there. He promised he was going to do everything he said in five years, and he did it in just over four years. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget as a night at the uh, hospitality in round about um, November nineteen ninety three. Fergus, I don't know if you actually know this, or if anybody knows this, or some people will know it. Fergus actually came over towards the end of 1993 and offered the board £17.5 million to take over everything at Celtic. And his debt was mounting. It wasn't as serious as it was four or five months later. His debt was mounting. They knocked that back. So Fergus was kind of fed up, and he said that was it, uh, that he was going back to Canada. I know that Brian Dempsey tried to talk him out of it and said, you know, no, we, we can still do this. And he said, no, he said, I've offered this amount of money for a club that's not making money, it's, it's raising debts. And these people, the, the, the directors, the shareholders, you know, they're knocking back an absolutely fantastic offer. If they really cared about Celtic, they would take this offer. So Brian, um, Brian arranged a, a surprise party for uh, Fergus and... Uh, Various people involved. It's uh, mostly money guys, but he invited me along. I remember I went along to this table, and uh, you, you could bring a partner. And I turned up in a kind of off-white beige, a Don Johnson type suit. <laughs> and I was sitting at this table. And I was pretty overawed by all these business guys. And Fergus said, towards the end of the meal, "I want every male in the room to stand up." and say from the bottom of their heart what Celtic means to them. And I was like, God, I'm glad I'm sort of sitting a bit 
eighth or ninth year. <laughs> just, you know, I have a time to, time to get my act together before this comes round. And Fergie stood up. And I scribbled this down on the back of a napkin. And you've probably seen it, the quote. He said, we should be proud of everything we've achieved as Celtic supporters. Because everything we've achieved, we've achieved in, we've, we have achieved in life without having to join any secret organisation to get there. And for that, you should be very proud of yourself. When I heard that for this wee guy, who I perceived as just being all about business, I was a big Celtic man, I was like, crikey, that's powerful. That's really powerful. And uh, then I saw a different side of Fergus. So he was fed up, he went back to Canada. And it was only, I think, with the persistence of Brian Dempsey to keep things going. And of course, our campaigns is still going. And uh, by this time, you know, we were packing out the city halls in candle rigs every second or third Sunday afternoon, telling fans what's going on, keep the faith, keep believing in us, we can do this, only fans can change this. Sometimes you were batting your head off a brick wall, just like the day I went into my mum's house and I said to her, you know, just we're getting bloody nowhere here. But the persistence of the group, every one of the guys in the group were absolute heroes, the absolute heroes. Brendan Sweeney, Colin Duncan, David Cunningham, John Thompson. Every one of these lads, they absolutely put their back into it. And, uh, you know, they all had families, all had kids. And uh, so you've got to remember there's pressures there, pressures from the house. You don't maybe expect every single person in your household to understand your commitment to this campaign. But uh, without everybody in the group, it, it couldn't have been achieved. It could not have been achieved. Now, we're on the verge, Ma, of a special season with the current nine-in-a-row team. Could you ever have imagined back then when you started Cells for Change or even before then when, when the boys had the Save Ourselves movement, which fell away a little as, I suppose, Celtic got a couple of results and the fans, you know, maybe said, oh, well, maybe it's not as bad as we think. No one could have envisaged a ten-in-a-row, Rangers going bust and Celtic in another European final. Nobody. No, nobody could have. Uh, at that time, you know, you're only concerned about survival of the club. You're concerned about the debts getting paid off. You're concerned about uh, Celtic Park not getting shifted to Canvas Lang. That, for me, that was key. And I was really pleased that, that Fergus McCann felt the same way. He felt the spiritual home uh, for Celtic Park was at Celtic Park. Now, a lot of people criticise Fergus. He's all about money. He's all about this, that, and the next thing. Of course, he's about money. But I'll tell you something else. He could have made the job a lot easier had he moved to Campus Lang and started building from scratch again on a Greenfield site. Much easier than having to build on an existing site and have the Celtic part we had today. But for him, he felt it was important. And uh, any chats I had with him, I'd say, you know, this is really crucial, Mr McCann. I'd always call him Mr McCann. It's really crucial that whatever you do here, you keep Celtic Park at Celtic Park. So th that was a concern then. So that was done. The stadium was built. You're never, ever thinking about nine in a row. And as those years went on, you're thinking about stopping them getting ten because they were heading, you know, towards the nine, which they eventually did. And then that was stopped. And then, you know, Celtic had up and down years. Barnes came in. Uh, I've got to say, he's, I've read his stuff recently and I, I found the man a, a really unpleasant character. Really unpleasant. I remember one day, because I'm writing this fans column and it's against the sort of... PLC attitude of the club. Um, I maybe wasn't very popular. Alan McDonald got me out of the office one day and said to me, um, John Barnes wants to speak to you. And I said, what about? He said, he's not happy with your columns. Well, I'm obviously pointing out things that you and I would talk about. 
that gone in a game. Obviously, the manager doesn't like seeing it written down. But if you want to sell a fan's newspaper, or a newspaper, a club newspaper to the fans, you have to give them it right, you have to give them it straight, you have to tell them the truth. But the truth written down doesn't look good to a manager sometimes. So I said to him, I've, I've got nothing to say to John Barnes Arm. He said, well, he wants to speak to you. And I said, OK, I says, when? And he says, oh, there's nothing, nothing sort of rushed. He says, he's, he just came in and he was complaining about some of the things you're writing in your articles. It shouldn't be in the club newspaper, etc. about the team performances and not winning, not winning, you know. Why would I not write a negative thing about not winning? And he, um, you know, as if you were to dress up every defeat and say, oh, it was hard luck, you know, I just missed there, it shouldn't have happened there. You know, the, the, the club ended up that season, I think, 21 points behind Rangers. So as I came out of Al McDonald's office, which is in the corner of the south stand, getting into the, the, the Rangers end, there's glass offices to your right-hand side and an open area to the left-hand side. And as I walk by two glass offices, glass-fronted offices, I see Kenny, Doug Leach and John Barnes sitting in the office and they're motioning me in. I thought, Christ, I thought this was going to be, I didn't time to think about this. <laughs> didn't know it was going to be as soon as I stepped out of Alan's office. So I went in and Barnes is sitting back in the chair and, he said to me, I'm not happy with stuff you're writing. I said, well, sorry about that. I says, but, you know, I don't get out my way to write negative stuff. I'm, I'm saying the truth as it is, as it happens. And he says, yeah, I don't like you. This, that, next thing. But you're writing this and da, 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 da. And a very negative conversation. We obviously weren't seeing eye to eye in any shape or form. So it was good cop, bad cop. Ken Douglas played, played the good cop. And, oh, it's not as bad as this and this, that, and the next thing. And, you know, Kenny would try, try and keep a lid on things. And the conversation was getting nowhere and it probably lasted less than five minutes. But as I was leaving the office, Celtic were playing Hearts at Tynecastle the following Saturday. As I was leaving the office, I had my hand on the handle of the door. He said to me, you'll be hoping Celtic get Bam said to me, you'll be hoping Celtic get beat um, so you can write some more negative stuff about me. Now, for somebody to say that to a Celtic fan, you know, it's just like, you'll be hoping Celtic get beat. Are you, are you insane? Are you kidding? But I must admit, I really kind of almost lost the plot. My stomach was absolutely churning. I turned around and I said to him, what did you say? And he said to me, you heard, you heard. I says, no, say it again. He says, no, you heard. I says, listen, yeah, I did hear. I said, but I'll tell you what. I said, see, when you're no longer here, I'll still be a Celtic fan. And I'll, I'll always be a Celtic fan. If someday I'm not in here, I'll still be sitting in the ground. I said, I'm a lifelong Celtic fan and I don't want to see Celtic lose any game whatsoever. And I don't need that to write anything negative. I said, so if that's your point of view, that's really pretty grim. And uh, I just walked out the door and I just thought, this, this guy's impossible. He's impossible to relate to, to try and have a chat with. He was very arrogant, very arrogant man. And I just found that, you know, he, he wasn't a guy I could relate to in any way at all. Obviously, not long after that came the Inverness carry-on and uh, he was gone. Well, Matt, we've only touched on parts of your life and your love of Celtic and supporting Celtic. I hope you've got loads of bits of paper around that house and you can jot down a few notes tonight because there's definitely a second book in Matt McGlown. There is a second book there and I don't think I'll write a second book because I've often thought about it and it's probably I could write double the size of the book that I wrote the first time. But sometimes people don't like the bare facts. They don't like people's names getting brought into things. And the older I get, you know, I'm sort of thinking, do I want to go back over all that again and, and so on? And, you know, I, I have thought about it. Putting a book together these days is a lot easier. You can do it without having a publisher. I had a publisher last time. I could actually do a book myself, you know, without a publisher. 
But I think you have to get into certain things, and I, I think it might sour things, memories, and so on. I, I want to grow, be a Celtic fan, and enjoy things, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there's one person as well who hasn't wrote a book, and that's John Clark, which is a shame, really, but I'm, I'm sure John doesn't want to... I think the reason why he, he doesn't want to offend anyone either, but there's so many great books, I think, that could be written, and there's so many books that have been written that maybe missed the point a bit. They're, they're written maybe just to cash in for Christmas. Matt, for the part yourself and the likes of Brendan Sweeney and all the other lads played in securing the future of our club and the success that was brought after that, I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself because uh, it's it's better when you get to go to see your team and they're winning. And when I started fighting Celtic, although I made some great friends over those years, they were barren years and we didn't win a lot. So for any small part that anyone played in making the success we have now, I thank them, especially yourself and the likes of Brendan, as I said. I've really enjoyed the chat, Matt. I hope to have you back on the podcast sometime in the future or maybe at one of the live events. Uh, I want to wish you the best of health and I want to wish you the best of luck for the future. Keep up the great work with the Alternative View and don't forget to send me a free Alternative T-shirt saying all these nice things about you. I'm looking forward to reading the next issue, but because I'm not allowed to leave the country, they're going to have to post it. I always pick it up at the little news agents across from Central Station when I arrive in Glasgow, but first, yeah, I haven't been over for a while. But I always enjoy it, as I do Not The View and The Shamrock. It's brilliant that we have still four fanzines in print. I think it's amazing. And we, we all got a mention in um, when Saturday comes, the 400 edition. And when it, it lists all the fanzines that are left in Britain. And there's not many. with There's not, actually nothing that have, can boast four fanzines. So I think we've done something right. And you mentioned Rebels earlier on. I think there'll always be Rebels writing about Celtic. Well, you know, Brian Dempsey came out and said on March the 4th, the game is over. The Rebels have won. And I spoke to him about that and why wasn't the word war? He says, because this was a game. He says, um, they didn't want to give up. We wanted to win the game. We wanted the best for Celtic. We wanted Celtic to be in a stable footing. So that phrase, the game is over, the Rebels have won, is one of those ones that's imprinted. I think I've got a couple of tattoos. I think I might get that tattooed somewhere on me, <laughs> even at this late stage in life. Um, but you were talking there earlier about the Baden years, and uh, I've always drove up the road thinking, you know, you drive by the bus park and you see all the buses going to Lanarkshire, Dundee and Aberdeen and Edinburgh and down to England. And of course, these hundreds of buses all heading down to Stranraer. I think it's Cairn Ryan they go now. They used to all head down to Stranraer. And I was thinking, I'm home here in 10, 15 minutes if I'm not going for a, a beer to talk about the game with my family or my pals or whatever. But I'm basically home in 10, 15 minutes. These guys are not getting home tonight. Well, you must be, I mean, Belfast guys are probably not getting home if it's a three o'clock kickoff to what, near 10 o'clock. I mean, down with you are, you must be near midnight or longer. The dedication of fans doing it over and over when Celtic aren't winning is absolute top quality because, you know, they're not coming for a winning team. They're coming to see the club, to see the team play and to hopefully see the club prosper and win cup finals and championships. So the dedication of Irish support is just breathtaking, to be honest with you. I'm lucky enough now that I can fly to the games. I live a half an hour drive from Dublin Airport, so life has got a little bit easier over the years. But you know what? I wouldn't change one of them miles. I wouldn't change one of them bus trips. I met the best of friends on them trips. 
from packing your sandwiches on a Friday night to getting on the bus at all hours in the morning. The crack, the sneaky weed drink, the lads I met in the boat, win, lose or draw. The only question on the lips was when is the next bus going? And uh, it's it just, it shaped my life. It shaped my family's life. And I wouldn't give it up for the world, man. And that's how much Celtic means to so many people. And I always say when you bring someone over for the first time, they either get already. If they don't get it the first time, they're never going to get it. It's just so unique. It's a unique experience. And I tell you one thing, if someone said to me, would you do it all over again? I'd do it in a heartbeat. The good years and the bad years. And I'll never, ever forget the run to Seville. That was the finest year I ever had in my life. I was broke. I was getting loans out of credit unions. But I wouldn't change it for one thing. And all the money in the world can't buy it. The memories that I have and you have and all the Celtic fans have. So Matt, I'm going to leave with that because you were a little emotional earlier on. I'm getting a little emotional now. It's been an absolute pleasure, Matt. And the best of luck and thanks very much. Thanks very much, Andrew. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, have a chat with you. Uh, hundreds of more stories and uh, I'm sure someday we'll, we'll catch up. Great story in Russia, by the day. Great story in Russia. <laughs> Hopefully when we do catch up, it's over a point of Guinness. Nick yeah. McGuinness. Yeah. yeah, Nick McGuinness. <laughs> what a character he was. But, uh, no, um, no, Kenny McCluskey, who was the lead singer in the Bluebells, who had the chap talking young at heart. Him and I shared the room. We actually get kidnapped by the KGB for two and a half hours in the back of a car. Um, but that's a long story. Touched on it in my book. But someday we'll talk about that. The next time. Yeah, great to speak to Andrew. And uh, as you say, Great that there's four Celtic fanzines going in a digital age, which is very difficult to do. You know yourself, if you're, if you're not into a fanzine, you're not going to do it half half cooked. You're either into it or you're not. And the dedication, putting these mags together and getting them out uh, is, is amazing. Uh, you know, I know, not the few guys know in the Celtic Shamrock, all great magazines and all great input. Everybody takes a different angle, everybody's got a different point of view, but it's all for the one love, one love, one cause, Celtic 10 coming up. Don't ever believe it's not going to happen. Thanks very much to Matt for taking the time out to chat to me today. I really would recommend his book, Emotionally Celtic, and don't forget to pick his fanzine up, The Alternative View. It's available in newsagents throughout Glasgow and should be sitting on the shelf beside more than 90 minutes. I had to get a plug-in for my own, didn't I? Thanks once again to everyone who has visited our website, celticfanzine.com, and especially thanks to those who have bought some of the Celtic Soul Clubber. You'll be the talk of the terrace. The latest additions to the line, Rude Boys and the original Glasgow Celtic hoodies are now in stock and have been posted out to all those who have pre-ordered. Your continued support means that we can create free content both written and spoken and we can also host some free live events when we're back in business and back in the bars. This podcast is available on all platforms, Apple, Acast, Spotify, etc. So please subscribe and follow us so you never miss an episode of the Celtic Soul podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Thanks again to our sponsor Staple, down at Humes, the oldest pub in Port Leash. If your business or Celtic Supporters Club would like to sponsor an episode, please get in contact. You can email us at info at CelticFanzine.com. As always, thanks to our producer Ronan McQuillan. A few of you have been asking about the soundtrack to the show. Well, it's one of Ronan's own compositions called Our Time. I'll have to get him and his band, The Enemies, to perform it on the show soon. The most important people are the listeners. Without you, there is no show, so thank you very much. Please keep the comments coming in, and don't forget to let us know your story. And if there's someone you would like us to get on the podcast, we'll do our best to get them on. Melbourne should be a warning to us that there could be a second spike of the coronavirus, and no one wants that. 
So if you're out the weekend, take care and wear a mask. We will be back again on Tuesday with episode 14, when my guest will be Australian Rugby League star and Celtic fan Keith Galloway. I couldn't pin him down for chat last week, but hopefully I can this week, because the old time zone between us and Australia is a little difficult, or so he tells me. But Scott McDonald didn't have a problem, Keith, so make sure you're available for a chat. I hope you all enjoyed the show as much as I did presenting it and chatting to Matt. Enjoy your weekend. I'm hoping to get back into the cross for a few points and a bite to eat. Unfortunately, I won't be spinning any tunes due to the restrictions, but hopefully soon I can dust down the tone tables. Keep the faith, and always remember, stay safe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.